Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Polity's podcast. We are so excited to be here for a second season of The Politics of Gender, where we get to dive in to the great mystery of gender, which baffles, confuses us, so we have to podcast. It's the only way. It's the only way. <laughs> this season, we are so excited to have Maria Brandel back. Maria, how have you been? I've been okay. Okay. Well, you know what we don't do is talk about our own lives on this podcast. So anyways. Thank you. <laughs> don't worry. Um, we are... Really excited to be discussing gender, the mystery of man and woman, and the sources of transgenderism in this podcast. And I'm especially excited to invite everyone uh, who's listening that if they have questions to go ahead and right now ask them in the live stream because we're doing it this way now. Oh, yeah, yeah. that's right. So I'll, right. And, I'll, and I'll in the future be online. This is very disembodied and weird, but in the future, I'll in be online <laughs> to answer any questions you have as best as I am able. I also want to invite anyone who is a trans advocate or um, maybe someone who is conservative and hears in some of the things that we think about gender something to disagree with. I would love to get some people to debate me in particular. I spent all my life just like trying to start fights and no one wants to. I'm like, I wrote this thing that should make everybody mad. And it's like, yeah, no, this is... That's, that's not how I write. <laughs> you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a great book about maleness, and it describes males as essentially agonistic. So looking to provoke a fight in order to prove that they're not uh, part of the maternal womb environment. And this is like, have you heard this thesis? Uh, no, but it checks out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but what we wanted to start with today as we introduce this new season uh, is, I mean, for me, just some of the excitement of gender I want to share with people. I know this probably sounds a little emotive, and I apologize, but it just struck me mm -hmm. that the church is, I mean, often we, we, we grow upset with the church because it seems like they don't have a, a clear answer to the problem of gender. Like, where is it? Right. Like we have all this crazy going on, and isn't the church supposed to be the one that has a clear teaching that just sets it down and destroys the heresies and gives us the full light of truth so we can go on living our lives like normal? And unfortunately, that's not who the church is. Right. Uh, well, that's also not what gender is. No, not at all. Like We are the church, the people like us. Yeah, I, I feel like people in, forget that all the time. <laughs> yeah. It's like, the church, wait, no, that's me. Mm -hmm. In union with the magisterium, and if we're not getting clear answers or the answers we want from the magisterium, it's in part because we ourselves are not contemplating the mystery to the degree that the Holy Spirit is calling us to in this age. Mm -hmm. We have to read the signs of the times. It is obvious that God wants us to think about man and woman. Right. Obviously. Which is, I, I think that is exciting. And I liked um, the idea of contemplating the mystery. I mean, that's, I, I remember doing that with friends in college. Yeah. And we just had so many questions and it wasn't because like we were like personally confused about our own gender, um, but there is so much mystery. Like, what does it mean to be man and woman in the church? Um, yeah, there's just kind of an open door of a lot of possibilities. Um, and I think the the apparent failure of the church is also it pressing us up against the mystery and saying, "Look and listen and learn and grow in wisdom," because the two main options it seems to me that are on offer for people if you're just trotting through life and saying hey what's this whole gender thing about you basically have two different closed 
systems, two closed doors, two very low ceilings right. uh, that you can enter under. Kind of worlds, maybe. Yeah. Worldviews. The first one, I mean, we're all familiar with. It's the what I would describe as a biological reduction, which basically holds that anything about man and woman can ultimately re- be reduced mm-hmm. to the physical reality of um, reproductive organs and reproductive gametes and reproductive um, the the act of reproduction itself right and what this means is if everything that sort of seems like well that doesn't this also have something to do with women and men the way we move the way we think the way we act these are what are technically called epiphenomenon they supervene or, or sort of sit on top of a more basic phenomenon which is ultimately a physical one that can be investigated with a microscope and mm-hmm. this is a whole um, genre Right. right now, it's saying like this thing that appears in women or appears in men can ultimately be reduced to this smaller microscopic genetic reality. Mm-hmm. And this has been a tradition with us, uh, this sort of low ceiling tradition well, for a long time. Well, it's just like, well, like we're, we're looking for, um, I don't know, we're asking the question of the meaning of men and women, yeah. which automatically puts us into a mystery because I don't know, like meaning is something that also has to just unfold in time but because we want black and white answers we look to science and science's method is just to pull apart things and look at their their parts yeah and so then you end up having to answer the meaning question by just biology and there's a lot of things that are really fascinating and helpful totally um and like revealing why men and women are the way that they are yeah um but it doesn't fully answer the the question and i think the problem with that is that like uh, it's kind of the idea of the low ceiling. You're just kind of put in this box and um, told that like the, the parts, like the biology, like this can explain the whole. Yeah. And I don't think that it's doing it. Um, no, for two, to my mind, two major reasons. One is that, and we've said this so many times that I hope I'm getting good at saying it, but <laughs> you have to know the whole in order to investigate the parts. Mm-hmm. So the very fact that we know this about spermatozoa and that about XX chromosomal patterns is because we first knew that there was something called woman and something called man and therefore had objects to investigate. Right. We had a given whole that we experienced as woman and then said, let's look at her cells and mm-hmm. see what's inside. What did not happen, and everyone knows this, is we said, here's a human being that seems to have this part of reproduction. Let's look at her cells. It's cells. And then look, we found that it has this chromosomal thing. Everything that has this chromosomal thing is a woman. That's not what happened. Right. The whole is given as a mystery. And when we investigate it, we learn things about the mystery. But that doesn't mean we've exhausted the mystery. I mean, I think I think DNA is a helpful one. Like we already we already knew like we already know woman um and it's helpful to learn about her dna but it's not like people were clueless about gender before that discovery it's a really exciting discovery for sure and it's helpful but it's not like but you have to be worthy of the discoveries of science because if you're a dummy which is what we work pretty hard at being in this culture (laughs) then you'll just think things that are are extremely silly so for instance in the 20th century we got really excited because we got to see sperm cells and ovum ova egg cells under microscopes and we were really pumped about this for good reason we have seen what no one has ever seen before we are investigating the mystery but because we're materialists we start saying things so this is in books written in that time like ah i see that the ova is a large passive cell 
This is like women on a macro level. They are the passive uh, sort of thing that just sits and gets nutrients. And um, unlike the males, because we look at the spermatozoa and we see that those sperm cells are moving around. They're really frenetic, just like <laughs> guys, because we love to run races and build things and move. And so you have a bottom-up explanation of the mystery. You say, oh, the man and the woman are homunculuses. We are <laughs> just our gametes writ large, as it were. We are large gametes. Yeah, which it's I don't know if you've sad. ever been called a large passive egg before, Miriam. Uh, <laughs> have you had the joy? No. <laughs> and I, I personally have also not been described as that, that little tadpole cell. Uh, well, it's good. Granted, it's more realistic, I think, in my case. I just, I don't know. Tadpole you're, person. It's you're fair. a frenetic person. Yeah, totally frenetic. Yeah. Although, that, well, anyways, there's a lot to say about sperm cells, but we don't need to. The point is, Thank you. <laughs> you have to be worthy of the uh, fruits of science. And we are an unworthy generation. So when we receive these things, we think stupid thoughts about them. We have technical capacity to investigate physical mystery, but then we obliterate what those that mystery means. Mm -hmm. uh, so for instance, like in the conservative world right now, there's a lot of investigation into all of the ways that um, sexual difference has this effect on people's bodies, even on their skeletal structure, uh, in order to own the libs, yep. right? So we're doing a lot of science to own the libs uh, who are saying that, you know, sexual difference is basically a fungible mental reality. Mm -hmm. So there's a certain benefit there, but then when you are incapable of asking the philosophical question of what is the meaning of these differences that we're finding in relation to the whole mystery that we began investigating in the first place, you end up thinking that what a woman is is a certain kind of skeleton. What a woman is, is a skeleton plus the chromosomes, plus the anatomical difference, plus the reproductive capacity. Um, mm -hmm. And I consider this, I mean, it's unfortunately like a, a, a method that would apply equally to a corpse as it would to a living person or right. to the divided parts as it would to the whole. And what the church does is demands that knowledge of the other sex and knowledge of our own sex is the result is the fruit of love and not of this crude sort of science. It's love that allows us to know the mystery, which allows us to understand the investigations of science well, of, of what's yeah, being, what's understand being the meaning. But what bores me about the biological reduction is equal. I mean, it's equally boring to go to the other side and make gender the the sort of mental construction, uh, the sort of brave rebellion against the sexual binary that we're all involved in and constructing our own mockeries of gender in order to trouble the heteronormative narrative of late capitalism. Wah! <laughs> you just start throwing words in there. Wow. Wow. I could have made that longer. I think. <laughs> Anyways, the point the the point is that the the thing that's equally boring is that okay, if in the physical side everything. Um, ultimately is reduced down to what you can look at uh, under a microscope in the in the camp of the mental constructionists uh, everything's reduced to yourself right right you're the one who decides your own meaning and I think if anyone's being really honest that's not actually meaning um, yeah. like meaning has to come from the outside um, that's the only way that it's really convincing like to have a role that you're being called into. Um, but then if you just create it for yourself, that you know that it's a construction. Um, 
And on the one hand, it can be exciting because that gives oh, yeah. you a lot of control. Um, it means that you, if you don't fit into the way that the the meaning structure has been laid out for you, like you can take it into your own hands. But I think after a while, it does become empty. It takes a lot of work to keep like putting meaning into your own construction. Yeah, and you end up deciding in a sovereign sort of way which things in your life um, are relevant and which are not. And so, you know, you have a clear mental pattern, you have a clear physical thing, and then you sort of step back from both and say, I'm going to follow the mental pattern over and against the physical thing, or I'm going to follow the physical thing over and against the mental pattern. I'm going to um, prioritize my history or not prioritize my history. But in, in all of this, what strikes me as so limiting is that you have to step out of the adventure of what's given and just decide things from within um, mm-hmm. as, you know, as the sort of the real of gender. And that it, the, the boredom of it is 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 obvious because all the answers are already there. Right. Like you don't go forth and find clues and objects. There is n- not a mystery outside of you that you are growing into and discovering. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're the one that's deciding everything. What the church seems to offer most fundamentally, and maybe it's simply doing it in a stuttering, failing way right now, but it is looking into the light of the mystery, squinting, I think, a little <laughs> bit. But <laughs> it sees in there um, an actual mystery. Mm-hmm. And, and it stutters because it doesn't know how to say what it sees yet. And that makes me so excited because it means that there is a real adventure that's possible to us. And I don't just mean mystery in the sense of uh, it's very beautiful and yeah, I think I, I think I think that's the way that gender is talked about now in a lot of Catholic yeah. circles like oh it's such a mystery it's so beautiful. By which but I mean it, I almost shut up be about like... <laughs> it because it's just great. Yeah. It kind of almost seems like a filler word sometimes. Yeah. No, what's been really restored in having these conversations with you has been the sense that Yes, it's a mystery in the sense that it's a given creation of God and so will always exceed what man can say of it. Mm -hmm. Um, It has that quality. But it's also a mystery in the way you like read a detective story where there are things that we don't understand and that um, we're drawn forward because there's there's so much to know. Right. And I do think that um, like scientific research is a part of that. That is really exciting. Um, and it is like fascinating to understand like, oh, biologically, like this is why I tick in the way that I do. But again, kind of like what you're saying, like both of those worlds are closed. Um, like the, there is, there is no transcendent meaning of gender that goes beyond either just the biological realm or my own mental or social constructions. And I think that that is what Christianity is opening up for us i mean thinking about uh jesus's words about heaven about in heaven like there will not be marriage like we won't be given in marriage anymore that's a very confusing mysterious idea i remember wrestling with that with some of my classmates back in college like how is that possible because if if what it means for me to be a woman is somehow tied to this reproduction thing how is it that that part of my body is going to be useless in Mm -hmm. heaven and Mm -hmm. yet i will still be fulfilling my meaning in fact i'll be more fulfilled i mean it seems like jesus is like dropping some like mysterious truth that we are meant to go chase after i mean that's not supposed to be 
Uh, yeah, I just I have a lot of questions. <laughs> yeah, and having a lot of questions, I think, is what the queer theory side of things sees as true over and against the biological reduction, which says there's no questions except for quantitative ones that we will solve given enough technology. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's something, I think, more Catholic in the queer theory side in the sense that it is saying... Well, there's, there's kind of both. There's more. Yeah, I think that's happening on the queer theory side, but there's something that's really lacking, which is mm -hmm. not accepting. I mean, there's a lot, but not accepting limitations, which I think the biological um, perspective is really good at. Oh, um, like it's good I, at, yeah, yeah, because like you, I I think a lot of people miss the relationship of. Mm, I don't know, uh, like exploration into a mystery or into an adventure. Like if you think of your classic adventure novel, um, like what makes the story so compelling is that you have this hero on his journey and he runs into actual problems and actual limitations, yeah, yeah. whether or not like it's from himself or just his exterior surroundings. Yeah. Um, and if he just tries to blow through them as if those limitations don't exist, like he's just going to fail as a hero. Yeah. Like part of what makes it exciting is like, how does he respond to the real limitations that are around him? Because it ends up opening doors in places he would never, never expect. I mean, that's what's exciting about those kinds of stories and mysteries. It's because you submit to the limitation of yep. your reality and because of that, you have to end up being really creative and things happen beyond your control that you would never expect. And you end up going a route that you would never see happening in the first place. And I think that's the advantage of um, like the, the conservative, like scientific owning the libs project. I, I think that's true, but I think it's locked in this oppositional dichotomy between the based and the woke. Uh, and it's 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 doing it harm. Because yeah. you're absolutely right. Like the search for limitation is the search for God's hand in our life that shows us what we're for, our destiny. It's awesome. It's exciting. Mm -hmm. uh, go limit yourself if you <laughs> haven't today. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's kind of what vows are in marriage totally. and in religious life. It's through the vow that you end up finding freedom. And I think this is a, a real paradox. For I mean, it is a paradox and it's very confusing for people unless you start to experience it yourself. I mean, I think probably the easiest example is if you're given a, a, a writing assignment, a prompt, and you can choose anything that you want, which is kind of like your constructionist yeah. viewpoint. You can choose anything you want. That's really difficult. If you can choose anything, like that almost stunts creativity, but if you're given a very specific prompt, yeah. if you're given limitations, when you really dig into that limitation, like here's my limited window, you end up coming up with something that you would never anticipate. Um, but it kind of seems like, yeah, I think you're right that because the conservative project is kind of locked in a battle with the left, it's not turning to look up yeah. into what is more and yeah. it, it also just doesn't really, I mean, it's locked in a battle. It's not locked in a conversation. I mean, not that you can really have a conversation online <laughs> yeah. like with other, with other people. Yes. Um, I don't know. So maybe like those uh, commentators and people who are saying really inflammatory things, maybe in actual reality, they know these people and are in dialogue that's with those people. That's probably true. And I don't, I just don't no, know that. No, that's probably true. You kind of you usually have to at the moment someone's yeah, face yeah. to face. Yeah. I mean, like if you, yeah. the debate setting is not to win over the other person it's to convince your audience. Mm -hmm. um, so well, I have to give space for that. Yeah, I think that 
the what what's happening is they don't we don't realize how we often share presuppositions with the with the people we declare as our enemies. So what we see in the current conservative uh, reaction to uh, what's broadly referred to as like the woke uh, description of gender um, is the doubling down on the impossibility um, of really altering sexual difference um, as a physical phenomenon. So what I mean is the response is largely, I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's like golden nuggets of wisdom that's hap- that are ha- that's happening at the same time. It's like time. you can't change your sex. Yeah, so it's like saying, like, okay, like you think, uh, the basic way it goes is, okay, you think gender is this construction that you get to perform. You think that, you know, you can become a woman because you make this psychological identification in your mind, but mm-hmm. you uh, are basically anti-science um, because what science shows is that there are things like your cellular structure, like your skeletal structure, like your brain shape and size, like your um, sort of proclivities on a sociological level, even like women tend to memorize things according to gist and men tend to memorize things according to particulars and things like that. And you, you utilize this massive industry of research in um, as a sort of weapon against the enemy. But the thing is, it doesn't, what you can never prove with um, even an infinity of material differences is that you, that the woke folk are wrong. <laughs> woke folk, that's hard to say. Because what you're presenting is a technical problem. What I mean is you're presenting a problem of not philosophically, oh, not according oh, to the so essence of anything. Oh, so you're not saying like, hey, actually your philosophy is wrong. Yeah, you're saying this is going to be really hard. Yeah, like, man, yeah. yeah, good job. You've uh, managed to do the mastectomy thing and have pretty convincing implants. Or, yeah, um, mm-hmm. you've you've achieved sort of uh, four basic things here, right? You've changed your hormonal uh, regimen here. So it's basically female pattern instead of male. You are socially presenting as a male. That That's important, right, as, as part of what goes into a gender. And you have, um, I don't know, uh, grown a beard. And you have undergone sort of bottom surgery in some way, and that these four things are, yeah, physical changes, but they're not enough because you didn't do this, you didn't do that. Your skeleton is still the same. Your brain is still the same. So they have a basically an individualistic idea and a material idea of sex that is too hard to change. But what the woke side are saying is not that. their whole premise is that you don't have to change much. You just have to change enough to be um, convincing. Right. You just yeah. have to change enough to either trouble gender or pass as gender, depending on what your sort of project is on the left. Yeah, because, um, I, well, they kind of place gender, if gender is something that is performative, and that's the philosophy of yeah. it, Yeah. because um, they separate sex and gender. So, I mean, they would agree I would presume with the conservatives, like, yeah, you can't get to like the deepest levels of biology. But Yet. if what <laughs> if what uh, gender is is different than sex, okay, fine, you can't change your sex, yeah. but you can change your performative role, and that's true. Yeah, like understand. if that's what if that's what gender is, then yeah, you can change a performative role. Sure, you can be convincing, and and I think the the what's missing. Um, it, what they don't see is that they both have reduced it to um, 
a certain material phenomenon, and so they've reduced the question to a technological question and not a philosophical question. So right. the conservatives are basically about the business of arguing that it is impossible, given our current state of technology, to do everything that would be needed, ne everything that is needed to be done in order to change each of the parts that we can investigate. Mm -hmm. And that's why it seems to me they are about a project of investigating the parts, of getting more parts, of okay. showing how I mean, which is a mountain convincing. Well, and it argument. might be true. You might be yeah. like, yeah, I cannot change all the parts. Yeah. But you've not actually questioned what it means to be man and woman or what gender is. Yeah. You, well, you haven't questioned you their said, philosophy yeah. of what gender is. Because they're going to say, yeah, I can only change six out of 900 parts. Fair. <laughs> but I'm going to change those six parts because I can convincingly live as the gender I feel like I am. Mm -hmm. And that is, that's sufficient. And I also, it's also very problematic to just be throwing different things that we technically can't change. If philosophically you can just say, well, I can imagine a future in which we do develop the technology to change so I can live now according to that truth. Like all I'm facing is a potential difficulty. And right. of course it's difficult. We know it's difficult. That doesn't, mm -hmm. I am about the difficult business of, of gender, gender construction and troubling. Yeah. yeah. So Anyways, that's not just to rag on it. It's just to show the deadlock that in these two worlds and these two options that are given to people, um, there's just not a lot you can do and there's not really a great mystery. Um, it kind of ends up reducing itself to technical difficulty and not mysterious infinity. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the Christian tradition, you um, really are presented with something that involves a whole life. Like to investigate the mystery, you have to love. Right. And I think what's happening... One of the things that's happening here is that um, there is something oppositional about gender as such. And the reason that the two sort of low ceiling versions of gender have such traction today is that they both operate as oppositional politics. So do we really imagine that we would all be excited to hear about skeletal differences if the skeletal differences weren't ways that we were destroying our enemies. Like if the skeletal differences weren't being utilized in order to win. I don't think so. I mean, it might be of note, I suppose. But what's so exciting about the biological facts is that they are being wielded against what's perceived as this totally chaotic, woke, constructionist, do-what-you-want, evil thing. And so the reason we feel like, yes, this is the gender thing, this is the hard thing, this is the true thing, is in some ways because it is the effective thing in the fight, right? right. It is the clenched fist, mm -hmm. and we want that, right? Mm -hmm. In a similar way, the whole appeal of constructionism is that it is a fight, is that it looks at this monster, which is the sexual binary that just reduces people into these types that they can't actually live up to and don't want to live up to and don't feel like they should live up to. And it mandates them through social norms to obey. So each side sees the other as a tyranny and right. each side sees themselves as the righteous rebel. And thus mm. each side is living the perfection and the glory of America, which is revolution <laughs> against a tyrant. They've achieved it. There's a reason we're inventing it here and exporting it. I mean, we try to export queer theory to third world countries. Doesn't work. It, they're doesn't like, work. can you write that down? <laughs> How many genders? You know, it doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, and in a similar sense, there's like this very, um, when we try to show like, that we do the same thing, but it's, it's more cloudy because of uh, the nature of it. When we try to 
I remember, um, um, I forget which commentator it was, but he was going to uh, different countries in order to prove the leftist wrong. He was going to different countries where they don't have like LGBT philosophies current mm-hmm. and saying like, what makes a woman? And they were laughing at the question. Right. Now, right. this I found to be wonderful, but I don't think it was quite proving the point that people wanted it to make. Like, I don't think people laugh at that question because they know about genes. Right. I don't think they laugh about it because they know about gamete production or if they do that that's they're the like, reason they're <laughs> laughing. Like, I know don't you know DNA. she's a large egg? That's so funny. So, no, sorry. That's not, I'm sorry. That's not a helpful joke. I don't think people think women are large eggs. Um, they did at some point, but we're good now. Uh, but we're good now. No, I think you're laughing because they know, the, they know their wives. Right, right. They know their wives. They know their mm-hmm. daughters. And mm-hmm. the laughter comes from the fact that it has become a problem. The right. solution, which is investigate the parts or construct it yourself, are laughable to the one who just looks at the mystery. Right. It's not that they have the answer, you know. It's not that it's not a mystery to them. Mm-hmm. It seems to me. Uh, certainly, that's how I feel. Like yeah. when I laugh at these things, it's not because it's like no, no, no. The real answer is their feet. It's the feet. <laughs> <laughs> like no, no, no. It's like I'm laughing because. You well, it's, it's just weird because you, the, you know, like yeah. you just, you know it, you know it and you know that men and women are different. You know it just from your like friendships, from your relationships. But then I think this is, I mean, this is the exciting thing about gender when you start asking the question, well, what does that really mean? And like, where does this come from? And why are we different? And what are we for? Um, especially when you get into, well, so much of our lives expand beyond reproduction. So there has to be more here. Um, like that's why it's kind of funny because you know it so well, but you can't really put your finger on what exactly everything is. Like you can't just yeah. like trot out this nice little neat definition. And I, and I think that's part of God's design. Mm-hmm. Like the, the thing you have to do to know what a woman is, is marry one. And the, the thing you have to do to contemplate the mystery of, of, male and female ultimately within the Christian tradition is to contemplate the mystery of Christ and his church. Right. Within Christianity, there is no knowing. It's a Heisenbergian problem, right? So for the uncertainty principle is basically that you can't know the spin and the direction of an electron at the same time. Now this confuses people, but it's really just a problem of our subjective place in the cosmos. Like the Mm -hmm. way we investigate spin changes the position. The way we investigate position position changes spin. And so we always, as subject in the cosmos, have an effect on the thing we're studying. Right. Now, this can lead people to despair in some ways if you think that the world is a cold, dead place. But the world is not a cold, dead place because we are in the cosmos naturally as its knower. Mm-hmm. Like we are the cosmos, we are the place where the cosmos comes to know itself, which is beautiful. And when it comes to women, when it comes to men, when it comes to gender, there is no objective knowledge available to us that doesn't change the object that we know. Like we, this is why I think we can't investigate women as we investigate the female corpse and we can't investigate men as we investigate the male corpse mm-hmm. because the relation to the other, um, like what I'm saying is there's no knowing that isn't also a growing Good. in virtue and a growing in love with the other. Like a relationship. Yeah. And, 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 and certainly you grow in more clarity of the meaning of that relationship when you grow in virtue because that draws yeah. out um 
the best part of that other person and it draws out the best of you. So, right. I mean, like I'm, I'm thinking of people who treat women terribly and then also have terrible relationships with them. And so this notion of like, this is what women are is very skewed and very messed up, but that's in part because you're drawing out like the worst of their vices. Yeah. Like we belong to each other. Um, female can't be known apart from the male and male can't be known apart from the female. And so it's in the relation of the two, um, the living relation of the two, that the mystery is 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 revealed. Mm-hmm. But you're right; it's it's a it's a revealing of the other that only happens in coordination with you growing yourself. Like if you are a vicious person, mm-hmm. women will appear to you in a certain way. Right. If you are a virtuous person, they will appear to you in another way. If you are a holy person, then it will, they will appear to you more further in truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there is no way, I mean, both of these low ceiling ways want to separate the life of holiness from the revelation of mystery. Or right. another way to put it is they want us to be able to have wisdom, but not because we ourselves are wise and virtuous, right. but because wisdom has been recorded in a text right. or a podcast. Yeah, I mean, that that is a, a very frustrating thing about wisdom. We don't really have a wisdom tradition anymore. And I think in any ancient wisdom tradition, there's the understanding that your your actions, your habits, your patterns, your virtues is intrinsically tied up with how you see the world. And I think if we reflect on this, this is really obvious. But if we think that the the mystery of men and women is just reduced to like pure knowledge and pure fact, and it doesn't move into the realm of wisdom, um, yeah, then obviously you wouldn't tie your actions, you wouldn't tie virtue with um, being able to see more clearly. Yeah. Um, and but this I is, do think that's, yeah, when you think about it, it's pretty obvious. Totally. Like, I mean, this is something that for those who are just coming to this podcast, we're part of New Polity, which is um, a think tank here in Student Mill. We do a magazine. And, and one of the things we're always saying is that um, virtue is an optional. It's necessary. And what we mean is that our world currently depends on the idea that we can remain vicious and wicked and unconverted and still have the goods we want. So this is obvious like within capitalism, for instance, where we think we can have the profit motive guide all of our decisions and then pushed through the market system, this will lead to optimal results for all, all parties. So we can have greed on the personal level and justice on the macro level. Hmm. And in a... Yeah. And in a similar sense with politics, this is basically Hobbesian politics, that we can all just hate our enemy and work for our own self-preservation in a war of all against all. But because of the structures of uh, government that this produces, we will have peace, not by having peace in our hearts and by um, victory over our passions, but because we're all subordinated to a sovereign that we all fear. And so you can have, on the one hand, prosperity without virtue and on the political sense you can have peace without virtue Mm -hmm. and i think in the same way in our own hobbesian capitalistic uh empire we are also looking at gender and we are we have that same presumption like we can know this thing without loving this thing in in Mm -hmm. the biblical language there's an identity between knowledge and love like when they talk about the sexual act by which man and woman are revealed to each other in their nakedness they say that um, Adam knew his wife, Eve. The knowledge and love are identified 
in a single word. And this is just a beautiful sign, I think, mm-hmm. of, of the task ahead of us, which is that love is a privileged place where the other is revealed as the other. And we live in a world in which wants to say, no, 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 we can get that knowledge without the love. I can get it from a textbook. I can get it from myself. Mm-hmm. Those seem to be the basic options. But I think what we actually see in all this is a desperate running away from the call of love, from the call of conversion, from the call of, we, we'll, we'll do anything. We'll do research. We'll spend money on this thing. <laughs> we will carve our bodies into the shapes we want. But what we don't want is to, is to love, mm-hmm. it seems to me. And, it, and that's fair. And I'm not even, this is not a critique. Like love is the hardest thing. Right. It's the best yeah. and hardest thing. And, and mankind has never been other than um, an animal very prone to run away from the demand of love. So right. we're all we're all in it. I'm not a I hope I hope that doesn't sound like Yeah. And I, I think I think that makes a lot of sense. And I, I think that in Christianity you you feel the pull of that into the transcendent. You know that this mystery of gender which is revealed in love is also drawing you like beyond the level of the merely human into the divine when uh, St. Paul is talking about uh, how like the the real mystery of man and woman is the mystery of Christ and his church. Yeah. I mean, that's another mysterious kind of tidbit that's just kind of dropped out there, yeah. um, which opens up the possibility for uh, the meaning of man and woman to be something beyond just the biological realm, because that's like not what's happening with Christ and the church that like this this meaning comes from above and beyond and it starts opening up the place for something like monastic life within uh, the setting of the church as the place where that mystery is really contemplated to the fullest degree and it's really only in the church that you get an institution of men and women who are living in their own separate and meaningful communities on their own mm-hmm. who aren't having a reproductive relationship mm-hmm. with each other but are fully manifesting the meaning of gender and that's that just it it never existed before the church and it doesn't exist now and i think that is something that uh, a lot of women in particular are grasping for like this intuition that um like yes i might desire a family i might desire a spouse but that kind of closed world too doesn't complete me i desire something more and when you live in at least like Catholic circles and you grow up knowing religious and this is like very normal and considering a vocation is just a part of life, then you have this natural intuition that ultimately I am for Christ. Ultimately, I have a mission. Ultimately, there's something beyond just trying to fulfill my dream of having like a house with this many kids and this kind of husband um, and not only that, but like a challenge to move beyond those things, because I, I do think that um, like we're just pushed with this ideal of material, controllable happiness and, and women certainly like young, young women need to have that door open. Like, actually, there's there's more for you here. You should yeah. be desiring beyond this in order for the thing that you are wanting, like a family life to yeah. be happy and fulfilling. Yeah. You need to search for something that's beyond that. Yeah, within Christianity, if I could take a stab at it, um, being a man and woman is primarily a communication from God. It is a sign in our flesh of our ecclesial nature, so our belonging together as the church. And 
reproduction is not in man like it is in every other animal. For one, we don't reproduce. God creates a new soul within us out of the material that man and woman provide, absolutely. But the power we have of procreation is in man um, the result and ultimately a, a figure of the symbolizing power of gender. Gender always has a meaning and not just at the point of reproduction, but its meaning is uh, signative of, of really the highest mystery of the nature of God and of his love for us. And I don't mean that just like airily. I yeah. really think it's in the body. I think, for instance, the reason men have nipples, which is <laughs> a great mystery that's possessed me for all my life, is really only answerable within the church, within the understanding of the body as fundamentally a symbol and a communication of God in order to reveal to man his ecclesial nature. Um, and one day I will write that essay because <laughs> it's in everybody. Augustine writes about it. Ambrose writes about it. It's, it's great. That's so funny. But um, the the true question that has possessed it's the really, church yeah, for all that's time. That's really what's going on here. So we're just trying to answer that question. Um, so, but it's it's just a very different life to live as a man, as a woman, when what you are doing is taking a part in a dance that symbolizes something that transcends both of you and right. completely involves you to the point that it actually is what makes you procreative. Like our fertility uh, as man and woman comes from a more primary symbolizing of God himself, a more primary symbolizing of the church. Mm -hmm. Like a, a narrative uh, written on our flesh is so powerful that it is also the source of man's continued narrative in history. Right. That wows me and I think it's wonderful but it, we have to at least admit that it is extremely mysterious and a very different way of uh, right. looking at the thing well I think I can give an example of like this idea of like contemplating the mystery and wisdom being associated with like, love and contemplation yeah. um, specifically with uh, women um, I think uh, w one of the the, one of the frustrating things about understanding uh, the nature of woman is that we live in a world that has reduced power to just being an external thing, mm. um, kind of uh, like it can be measured, I guess, mm -hmm. by strength, by money, by wealth, by, I don't know, just like how many people that you can control in external fashion yeah. um, and that's the only kind of power that has value within our social structure I mean kind of like I guess we'll go into this in a um, in the next episode uh, like the only kind of work that's perceived as real work in our society is work that earns a wage yeah. and there's real work that we do all participate in that's not wage but we don't really conceive of it as work um, I mean, just just because of yeah. I mean, we, like we just we just don't think of it as being real work. Real work mm -hmm. earns money. Um, real power can be measured. Yeah. Um, and so, if that's the only place that has value, um, like this is just something that like women are not going to be as successful uh, in terms of men. Um, like we just have different drives. Uh, we're not going to um, make as much money as men, especially if we do get married and we have children. I mean, that just slows down that whole process. And so, like, you have the feminist movement really reacting 
against um, like this unequal power dynamic, which is just true. Um, but to merely assert that like, well, you know, this is just the way that women are and the way that men are and there's a hierarchy and it's unequal. Sorry, guys, it sucks for you is also dissatisfying for women. And I think what Christianity really opens up is that there's another layer to reality, the spiritual reality, in which um, there's a there's also another hierarchy, um, like parallel to the, the physical hierarchy that we see just, or like the social hierarchy that we see like externally, but there's a spiritual one of, of holiness. And uh, in the hierarchy of holiness, if you want to grow in holiness, um, hiddenness and humility are real huge advantages. If you want to go far in the spiritual life, it is extraordinarily difficult. But when you submit to your limitations, the virtue of obedience, the virtue of humility are like really to your advantage. Um, And so I think if you are really bought and sold on the idea that there exists uh, a reality of hidden glory, which I think you do find in like the way that God comes to us on earth, like in like in hiddenness as a as a child, I think He's revealing that reality. Um, then suddenly, you're not so constrained by needing to have power like a man, mm-hmm. because you realize that there's also another playing field in which I have a huge advantage. So within the church, you find that the majority of mystics tend to be women. Mm-hmm. It's like that's not to say that like men can't become like extraordinarily holy. But, of course, we know this, but in, there's it, an advantage yeah. for sure. And in the church, men self-consciously take the woman as a model. So in the spiritual power, in um, you know, uh, you know, Balthazar has written movingly about this. D.L. Schindler writes very powerfully about this. Um, and maybe we can put some links to that because I don't want to. I don't. I don't. I want them to do it justice, but. Um, it's obviously the case that creation as such is feminine in relation to the father and that the work of both men and women is to be like Mary, the mother of God, who is the point at which creation says yes to God, mm-hmm. um, who is the the hidden power of humility, as it were, Right. I mean, I, I did not understand Mary for a really long time, maybe until like this past year. Like I just didn't, I didn't get her. And there's a number of reasons of why that's opened up for me. Like I just, I didn't understand how powerful she was. I had no idea how glorious she was. She's the one who can say her Magnificat that like the mighty will be cast down from her throne, their thrones, um, and mean it. Like she starts the world historical movement in which, weakness for the first time um is not just actually powerful but recognized as such it makes mm-hmm. the Nietzscheans well, very not, mad but not not uh i mean i've thought a lot about nietzsche because I, I mean there's a lot of critiques that he had of christianity which are correct like just because it's not that uh weakness alone is an advantage like, he's right that when you look at kind of the social hierarchy, the strong are at the top and the weak are at the bottom. And that's true for spiritual reality as well. Like, the the strong of soul, the people who are close to God, they are at the top. And then the people at the bottom are the ones who are the weakest spiritually, mm-hmm. like, lacking in virtue. Um, 
So that that kind of hierarchy really is echoed in the spiritual life. And what's interesting is that weakness, according to this order, can be to your advantage in gaining strength in this other order. But it's not as if you become, it's not, like, there, there's such a thing as a spiritually, like, weak and pathetic. It's just true. Yeah, sure. And what's interesting is that, I, like, like, that. that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, like, just because you have uh, a lot of, like, external strength doesn't mean that you have that kind of internal spiritual strength. Yeah. And so I think there is a problem in thinking that just because you're weak, you are now at the top of the hierarchy. Absolutely. Like you can you can That's, have a lot of limitations, but if you're still a terrible person, yes, if you still don't have virtue yeah. and you think that you get to be at the top of this thing, like no, like the spiritual reality is it takes a lot of hard work. Yeah. The paradox is that like weakness externally can be to your advantage. Yeah. We- um, weakness also within Christianity it it calls upon strength. So uh, what I always want to be sensitive of is when we talk about male and female, we're talking about a relation. Neither part can be understood apart from the other. And so it is impossible to simply evaluate them as if they were individuals that could be separated out and sort of hierarchized. Mm-hmm. It's, it's always the case, and everyone who's been in a family knows this, that like if someone is weak in the family, it in love requires the strength of the other to turn towards that person. So in a certain respect, there is no one weaker than the child, uh, but there is no one more powerful than the child because the Mm -hmm. child obviously dictates the actions of the strong. Right. And what's incredible about um, the story of the Gospels is that, well, I mean, there's many things incredible about it, but it's not just weakness um, being glorified for its own sake, but it's always weakness that is open to the help of God right. and is thus strong. Well, I think um, the the crucifixion is a good example of yeah. this with the two thieves. I mean, both people are in incredibly weak and vulnerable positions, yeah. but only one of them calls upon the strength of right. God. And so, like in the spiritual hierarchy, I mean, there's an obvious difference between the two. Yeah. So it's not d- just because both are on the cross, just because both are weak, both of them are exalted. Like you do actually have to open yourself up yeah. to the above. And I think like you're not going to be convinced of that without the experiential knowing to kind of like wrap up that example. Sure. Like I didn't, a lot more femininity and Mary makes sense to me now because of my own experiences and prayer and like finally realizing, oh, like what the church is saying is actually true. <laughs> and yeah. I know it because I know it now and not just because I'm hearing about it, which I think just if you merely hear about it, you're like, eh, I question this. I'm a little skeptical. Well, it's we, we live in very difficult times because we want glory so much yeah we just we want glory so bad and i see this in our um and i mean i'm as as culpable of this as anyone um but you see this in the the difficulty of describing a kind of ideal i mean we're all obviously after yet again another century after the woman question gonna get the answer this time and you can see in a lot of our trends and a lot of our actions um, the attempt to answer that, to put forward uh, the ideal woman, to put forward the ideal man. 
the great difficulty here is, well, there's, there's <laughs> three difficulties I can think of. Um, the first one is that, like I mentioned, we're doing it oppositionally. And this seems to be replacing the oppositionalness of gender itself. So what I mean is like we oh, assert yeah. something like this is the, the based red pilled scientific male over and against the lily-wristed constructionist thing. They assert this is the truly insightful hero, hero of modernity over and against this tyranny thing. Um, and all of the joy and the fun of gender is siphoned off into uh, the joy of war, the joy of joining in political war of all against all and picking your side. Why I think this is particularly obscuring of the phenomenon of gender itself is because gender is given to us as it's given to us to oppose the principalities and powers of darkness. Like when Eve is given to Adam as a helpmate, the word for help in the Hebrew is the same word that's used of God whenever he's called Israel's help. So mm-hmm. as as savior. And you know, Kierkegaard has this great line in his journals where he says, I'm going to murder it, but he says something effective like, even if there was someone born innocent, would they not still need Christ, their savior, to keep them in their innocence, to preserve them in their innocence? Mm-hmm. And something like this guides the whole um, early Jewish tradition in looking at gender, looking at man and woman, where you have man and he's in the Garden of Eden and he's obviously resplendent with a certain perfection. And then Rabbi Rashi says that all of the angels and the and the animals started to praise him and say, Hosanna, Hosanna, right? Because he appeared in his singularity of sex as someone self-sufficient, complete, a god. Um, and so that's when, in this tradition, uh, the God says it is not good for man to be alone and introduces the woman. So when the woman comes to the man, it's precisely as a help, as a savior against idolatry, which means that in our actual historical experience of being man and woman, what we have is a gift to preserve us in innocence, a gift to preserve us in our humility as creatures. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, what's his name? Who's the Protestant guy who is Austrian, I think, and is killed by the Nazis and... Oh, sorry. Dietrich Bonhoeffer yes. Yes. describes this incredibly beautifully. He describes Eve walking to Adam and he says, that is Adam's limit, embodied and made lovable. Hmm. And he doesn't mean that she's just some version of the male. What he means is in the male to female and the female to male, what we gaze upon when we look at the other person is our creatureliness itself. Like that the presence of sex in the world means that there is another who we are not, which means that we are limited, mm-hmm. which means that the male is not all. Right. And which... the female is not all. And neither are God, because God has no incompleteness. He has no insufficiency. He needs nothing to be who he is. He's mm-hmm. perfect in himself. He's perfectly happy. You don't need to say, okay, I can't understand God. I mean, you need to say this, I guess. I <laughs> this is a bad example. But the point is that God needs no other to right. be kind of... Um, defined as who he is, intelligible in who he is. He's intelligibility Mm -hmm. itself. Whereas man and woman face each other as their own limit, 
but it's a mercy and a gift because that limit is beautiful. Right. Attractive. But it's also it's also the um, it's the bridge to divinity because there there is only one divinity. In order for us to participate in that, the very first thing that we have to do is just know the truth, which is that I am not God I'm and not He God. is everything. Yeah, Eve and so is that to other Adam. person like is is the pathway of helping you to accept your own creatureliness so that you can accept the gift of divinity, which seems to be the plan totally. in Genesis. Like I need you to trust and to accept your own limitations and here's like this visible manifestation of your limitations in the other. Um, the other becomes your pathway to the divine. Yeah, you're the sign of your not godhood <laughs> is also lovely. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the thing. Like Adam loves Eve; she's beautiful to him. That's so obvious, and she is the sign of his not not godliness or not godhoodness, <laughs> his creatureliness, his limitation. Yeah, and so he's given a garden in which to learn to love his limit and to really speak to his limit, even as he is. A limit to the other and they speak to each other and they have a joy in creatureliness they 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 in the reality of sex their sex say as it were in their bodies what god said of creation that it is very good precisely as creation as Mm -hmm. not godness and in the fall when they desire to be like god it's an inversion of gender. It's an inversion of sex. That's why the narrative is just rife with some kind of like unsexing thing that everyone picks up on somehow, but it's not clear why, but it, it's just obvious that they are casting away the primary sign of their not godness in order to say, I would like to be like God now, mm-hmm. which means if you want to be like God, you simply cannot be sexed. You simply have to degrade right. the one who shows you your limit, the one right. who you used to say so, you loved. Is that what you mean by um, like sex being oppositional, like to yeah, yeah, to yeah, to you. to thank tyranny you. and to our own attempts to become God? Because any other person, you come up against your limit, and so if you want to keep the illusion that you are God, then you have to destroy the other in some way. Totally. And at least I, I mean, certainly men and women do this differently. Like generally speaking. Like men tend to do this to women in objectifying them in tyrannies, putting them into the harem, or just reducing women to a biological function, um, or I don't know, like in the philosophy of woman is just the deficient male. Um, and I think women can also do this too. Um, like I think you kind of see that in some of the mythologies of the consuming, controlling mother or of, um, I don't know, like I think women, when they're vicious, tend to try to make themselves a goddess by having the whole their whole little world revolve around them mm-hmm. and just manipulating everyone into like their own like control and their own story and serving them. Um, so like I, I've always conceived of this as like, like there's like men tend to dominate in like the form of a mountain, just like crushing what's below. Yep. And women tend to dominate by just like pulling everyone into their orbit. Yeah. And in either case, you're right. The, the goal is to degrade gender, to degrade the sign of limitation, to make it possible. I mean, sin is right, always just, yeah, like, sin in the likeness of the first sin. So the first sin was the desire to be like God, not as God wanted to give us the gift of participation in his divinity, but as the book says to reach out and take 
the fruit of mm. the tree. This is kind of speculative, but I guess kind of with that image, I guess up until Christianity, you do tend to have the the male vice being the social vice of just destroying the sign of the woman. Yeah. And I wonder if we are experiencing now a more like feminine vice of like, uh, at least with like gender construction of like, like the, the pronoun thing seems like that kind of form. Like I need everyone else um, to conform their language to my reality. I yeah. mean, that kind of seems like I, I am the goddess of my own reality if we're just following that trend. No, I think that's I think that's true, but I I want to suggest that no matter how you do it, you always degrade both right. genders, right? Yeah. So like harem is a really good obvious example because if we don't have to go down this road all the way, but really quickly. I love the book of Esther. It strikes me as uh, Aaron Aaron Balsarak who works uh, for New Polity made the very good point, and I've just been thinking about it ever since, that the all the books of the Bible that prove that the church has something incredible to say about gender are not in the Protestant Bible. Oh. They don't have Judith. Oh. And they have Esther, but they only have the Hebrew and not the Greek. And in the Greek, you have all the parts of Esther that make it a story about woman as a destroyer of idolatry hmm. instead it just becomes this weird like story about how women uh are really pretty and so men change their minds and because they're so they don't have tobit they don't have tobit exactly anyways but it's not to rag on the protestants we will do that in the upcoming episode <laughs> uh, <laughs> don't worry it's coming <laughs> it's coming um but in in esther it's just a phenomenal example of this because harem is the attempt to produce divinity in the male obviously you can't actually produce divinity in the male because it's a lie we're creatures but what you can do is degrade the sign of your creatureliness which is the woman who limits you Mm -hmm. and you can say i will treat her and look at her and think of her in such a way as to exalt myself and this is just obvious on the face of it but i think looking at the the way it works is really interesting because um instead of woman being that which grants intelligibility to the male and vice versa. And this indicates that both of them are not God because um, they need that mm-hmm. mutual gift of intelligibility. Uh, woman becomes treated as if she were an animal vis-a-vis the man, right? So woman is made to appear as a stock character. So instead of as an individual, um, she is who, I mean, this goes back to our whole discussion that like to try to know gender just as women or the woman is to already be wrong about the object you're studying. You need to marry a woman. Like the reason monogamy is necessary is because you will be wrong about what women are if you don't have one individual (laughs) because there's no such thing as women as a universal species. There are only in reality individual women. And so there is no knowledge of the universal except through the particular. Mm -hmm. But but it's a little different with animals, right? Because they are, the individual animal is subordinated to its species. So there is a way in which if you know one sparrow, you kind of know every sparrow. I mean, there's there's differences of variation, but not differences of individuality, um, except for what humans, okay, anyways, that's so many topics. We're not talking about <laughs> the way that animals become individuated according to human construction. But if you can convincingly make the woman 
appear not as the particular individual, then she has a, the same status as animals to the man. And so the man becomes exalted not by virtue of attaining divinity, but by degrading his limitation, right. yeah. uh, degrading the sign of his limitation. And so in Esther, what they do is they bring all the virgins into the control of eunuchs, and the eunuchs um, have them undergo a regimen of beautification where they all start to smell the same. So they get all the same perfumes, and then they all start to feel the same because they all get the same uh, like like lotion regimen. Like they're all right. they're all becoming very similar stock characters, and then they are brought into the king. They are never allowed to appear. But this is the whole drama, right? They are never allowed to appear before the king except for at his uh, request. request. Mm-hmm. And so what you have is, a, is literally a gate um, that is determined by the male when and how the female will appear. Mm-hmm. And so she can never be a surprise. She can never appear in herself, but only as a, a variation of the same. Here comes another one. Here comes another one. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not, yeah, there's no, there's not a personal name. Now we know this, right? This is just how we think of harem anyways, mm-hmm. because Christianity reveals it to us easily. Right. So the story of Esther is, is one in which a particular sexual perversion is used um, in order to reduce the sign of the woman for the sake of the production of divinity in the man. And so when Esther, uh, through the whole plot, which I'm not even going to talk about, finds out that the king has planned through manipulation of the eunuchs to kill the Jews, she prays to God, and this is a prayer that is not present in the Hebrew Protestant Bible, um, and she actually undoes in her prayer all of the homogenizing features of the harem. So she rips oh, off her uh, fine splendor. Yeah. She puts dung, poop, upon her head. <laughs> I mean, this is like, you will not understand women unless you understand this. Like, she <laughs> she makes yeah, herself... Yeah, this is what we all do. Men don't know this. <laughs> she makes herself smell, look, and feel unlike, radically unlike, horribly unlike every other woman in the harem. And this is mm-hmm. this is her, her prayer to God. And she specifically prays to him to destroy the idolaters that would magnify, have them magnify forever a mortal king. So she understands that in, mm. in harem, in her situation, there is the effort by man to destroy the sign of the woman, which always makes our limit lovable, and instead have divinity produced in man. And so she radically alters herself to be um, not an animal vis-a-vis uh, the man, but but differentiated. And then she does the, the whole unthinkable act, which is to approach, approach the, king the king not when he wills it, but when she decides it. And so she comes as a surprise that he cannot anticipate, which mm-hmm. is exactly how Eve is presented to Adam in the garden. Woman always comes as the unanticipatable grace. That's why Adam falls asleep. God puts him to sleep. Literally, the the introduction we have in our tradition to woman is that we missed how it happened. We woke up and she was there. This is like the foundational teaching that, that somehow we're all just like, yeah, I guess he had to go to sleep. I mean, it's hilarious. Like the descriptions are like, well, that rib thing would have hurt. So you got to put him under. That's the Jews. The Jews all think, well, not all the Jews. A lot of Jews think that. They also think like, well, it would have been gross. I mean, imagine a rib becoming a woman. You don't want to see that. <laughs> so we have these really dumb literal interpretations. But like the, the most majestic part of it is obviously that she's a surprise. 
Right. You didn't anticipate that. You were sleeping. You had nothing to do with that. Right. Anyway, so the point is, Esther comes in as a surprise, and you experience in only the Greek version, not the Protestant version, this incredible moment that defines the actual vocational status of women in the real narrative of human history. Mm -hmm. Like this is what women are for, and this is what is masked in all of our low ceiling systems, is that she shows up and faints because the man appears to her as a god. So she says that. She says, oh, yeah, you right. appeared to me like an angel of the Lord, she says to the king. Uh, and he's he's bedecked in jewels. And that's really important because in the um, in the tradition, that's how gods in temples were. Dressed, right? yep. And so he appears as a god in his temple. She faints. And then, incredibly, he he literally comes down from his throne to help her. Um and becomes because of what she did, which is which is weakness too. Like mm -hmm. she's fainted. She's literally leaning on the on her slave when this happens, and he takes the part of her slave by doing what the slave's doing and lifting her up, hmm. um, and says, "Like don't be afraid." Right. He denies the appearance. He's not a god. Hmm. She takes away his whole uh, the whole effort of harem to produce a divine king, she destroys just by showing up. Mm -hmm. And he falls in love like that. And then the whole rest of the story, also not in the Hebrew uh, or in the in the Greek versions, is the letters from the king who converts. So he's basically, mm -hmm. now he has a whole humility about him. Whole Anyways, and I like to think that he gets rid of the harem too. It's not... It's not clear, but <laughs> <laughs> it'd be nice. It'd be a better. But story. okay, so this is just my 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 hapless attempt to to talk about Esther because Esther, like Judith, like Eve, like all the women in the Bible, and ultimately like every woman who is involved in a real narrative of salvation history, and not in this like empty playing field of biology or right. just facts, um, has really in her body and in her person a vocation to destroy idolatry by embodying man's limit and calling it very good against all the odds. That is oppositional. What I mean right. is woman as such is oppositional. There's this line in Zirak, I, I love it. It's, it's talking about wisdom, but wisdom is in the form of the woman. And wisdom is mm -hmm. given to save the first formed father of the world, Adam, from his transgression. She has a mission from the beginning yeah, I, I'm. I'm probably going to talk too much about this because it's very exciting. But yeah, well, I think it's it's helpful. Uh, the the biblical narratives open up the other thing that we kind of suspect about gender is that gender is associated with mission, and yes. the mission that we have is not just like to do good for humanity. Yes, I, mean, I to uh, make babies for state. <laughs> yeah, uh, or or just like even like that. I just want to make a difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think we do have an intuition that there is something more deep and profound going on with our spiritual lives, and even like the role that women have in the household. Um, I don't know. Like I, I, I can just get a little bit annoyed. You? I get, I, <laughs> I get, I get annoyed with when people. Um, start using like hero language for moms i appreciate moms um there, but... it's on record <laughs> i love my mother my okay mother. 
Um, but uh, like this, uh, I don't know, just like trying trying to call like a woman like who's a mom a hero in the same way that like a firefighter who does something like particularly dangerous is a mm-hmm. hero, or like uh, I don't know, just like a hero in any like classic hero story. Um, it's just kind of frustrating because like you it's not the same and everyone knows that it's not the same um but i think if you are kind of tapped into like well i understand that i i do have a mission and that there is something deeper that's going on then you being a hero it's not just like because you are juggling all of your kids activities that's not what makes you a hero there's actually this deep and mysterious spiritual battle going on excuse me (laughs) um but yeah. like there, there is like a real serious uh, spiritual battle going on, and women have such um, a, a powerful role in that battle. Um, and there is something really significant to like the hidden glory of woman and like what Esther is able to do, because in this battle, it's like the battle for souls. And there's something about woman that is able to get particularly to the soul of men in a way that other men cannot approach. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you start to look at your own role differently. So, like, I do think that women are heroes, but not merely by, like, juggling kids' activities. It's because yeah, we like, make we're them, being called into a real mysterious mission. Right. It's like you, you make them heroes because they're basically walking daycares, but they're heroes because they're God killers. And, I like that. And it yeah. just seems like we're missing the point. And, and, and it's especially asinine because... Th- the family and the vocation of motherhood in a profound way is obviously part of that primary vocation that was present in the beginning, which is to get rid of the glory of man for the sake of the glory of God. Like what is so obviously incredible about motherhood is that it doesn't get praised. Mm -hmm. Like you do. Yeah, sure. You save your children's life six or seven times a day. You, you can say all these things that people say in such a cringy way about like um, how you're really, if you were paid, uh, you know, all the money you deserve for, for childcare and for being a chef and for being a uh, cleaner and blah, blah, blah. You would be like, I don't know. You'd, you'd be a millionaire. Whatever. You'd make some money. And so, so like the, the effort is to take what, what by its nature is a form of life that siphons off glory and gives it to God and instead return it like here's the glory here's the theoretical glory of the money you would be making mm-hmm. i mean this is why in a big way the internet is anti-family in itself and not just by the way it's used because what the internet does for the first time for men and women and families is it gives us the technical ability to to post about our familial lives in a way that accrues glory or at least seeks glory um, when the whole point of the vocation of marriage and that meeting of man and woman is to rejoice in the glory of God, to, to receive glory from God precisely because y- you are glorying in the fact that you're not glorified, that you're a creature. I mean, right. you're, well, you're just very paradoxical. Like you're enjoying, you can't really enjoy the mystery if you're posting about it and then getting anxious about your posting about it. Yeah. And it's and 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 then it becomes oppositional, right? So then our our posting about being a trad wife or being a real man becomes the way in which 
we destroy the whole significance of being man and woman in actual life, which is to rejoice in our lack of glory, to rejoice in our limit. Um, And so we kind of post our way out of that problem by making even the sort of traditional man or the traditional woman into a way of accruing glory for ourselves, Um, which is sad. Right, right. Like I I remember, I remember I was um, watching some kind of uh, like social political commentary and they're just like playing like this new like TikTok trend of trad wives, which I hadn't seen before. And it was just so bizarre to me because you had um, these women who were just very obviously putting on a show. Um, like, uh, I think, like, one woman was just, like, dressed in, like, very a very traditional, like, feminine outfit and was, like, cooking stuff. Mm. But, like, she was... I mean, it was, a, it was a show. There was no children around. Like, she was just living this, like, kind of visual ideal. Mm-hmm. Um, or another one, I think, was, like there's a stay-at-home girlfriend phenomenon. (laughs) This one is the one that really made me angry because she was, like, she was, it was like a day in the life of a Mm stay-at-home girlfriend. Mm -hmm. And so you just kind of followed her around. She's like, all right, everyone. So this morning I made coffee for Jason. (laughs) He really likes vanilla lattes. (laughs) And then I worked out for two hours. Mm -hmm. And then I went and had my smoothie. And what was so irritating was that the... The commentators who like I I agree with like a lot of their opinions. So I was kind of shocked that their attitude was like, see, like they're just like like women in traditional roles. They figured out that this is like what they want. This is what makes them happy. Yes. And the internet's getting so mad. And look at all these feminists getting so mad at these people. It's like, do you not see like how vapid and empty and contentless their lives are? Well, and like you also, think this like, is an improvement? <laughs> the the great medieval tradition of posting yourself on TikTok is <laughs> yet to be explored, <laughs> but it does it does have this effect of the the because there's something there's something in it, right? So you you in their desire to fight the 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 war, post yourself as humble and you post yourself as a servant and you post yourself as veiled and small and as everything that you can see in what's left of the ravaged Christian tradition um, of femininity and precisely in doing so you undo it all Mm -hmm. because if we are going to glory over our humility then we've lost we've lost it like we've already lost it in the posting of it. It's like that old yeah. joke, right? Where it's like, I'm the most humble person here, you know? Like, okay. um, <laughs> this seems to be the the great, yeah, I think I mean, the, when, the great when, temptation when I... of the internet generally is to take goodness itself and then to trot it out as a performance for the sake of glory. So it's like a, it's like a machine that transforms reality into glory. Yeah. And we don't, we shouldn't see glory. Right. I mean, when I, when I think of the, the most impressive men and women that I know, like these are people who have are so so intelligent, so virtuous, so naturally talented, have just a wealth of experience, and you wouldn't know because they don't parade it. Um, they they're so confident in themselves that there's no need to post about it, and there's no need to explain like, well, like actually, you need to understand that I'm qualified. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, well, it, it's so it's so it's so refreshing. It goes back to what we were saying at the beginning, which is that. Man and woman are not actually known as objects. They're known as subjects. They're known in love. And so it's not just like that 
we just abase ourselves and are terrible at everything and that's how we glorify God. Like there's excellence in human life as something that rejoices in its own creaturehood. Yeah, but that's not known by making a corpse out of it. It's not known by making an object or a picture <laughs> or a video of it. It's known in its reality through love. Mm-hmm. And if, if there's anything we want people to get from uh, this second season um, of gender, it's the necessity of removing ourselves from a conversation that would treat gender as an object which will yield up its fruits if only we give it enough investigation. And and instead, we want to encourage people to convert to the church (laughs) and to enter into the relations of love, whether in marriage, in the monastic life, and more generally, just in relation to God, like open to God, that the mystery of gender would be revealed to pray to him for this because you have to enter the correct mode for the for the object. The, right. the object is a subject. That's the paradox. And so it reveals itself in loving relationship and it reveals itself in vocation and mission. It is not a dead thing. Mm-hmm. And so it does not reveal itself. In fact, it obscures itself and veils itself and often leaves people very puzzled and angry, as we will see in Otto Weininger, <laughs> the guy we're reading, when you try to investigate it as an object. Like it, it hides. Right. Because if you ever feel like, ah, oh, I finally understand woman now that I've measured the skeleton, like you just haven't. You've been misled. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we know this. Um, and so we really want to encourage uh, the basic thesis here that, uh, and maybe it's not the basic thesis, but the basic encouragement here, which is that there is not a true understanding of man and woman outside of the church. There is not. There's not like a, a natural understanding that we can be happy with and close the ceiling on. And then maybe if we become Christian, then we can say nice things about that. But really, we're just sort of super adding on to a basic phenomenon. No, like mm-hmm. to understand the meaning of man and woman in the body, in the reproductive function, and in its ultimate transcendent meaning, we need God. We need the church. We need the revelation of, of Jesus Christ. And without that, we will always fail. We will always falter. Um, and that's harsh because I know we really want the power of science just to fix it for us. Right. <laughs> but since when has that not been the temptation of modernity? Like, right. that's what we keep doing is saying, like, we're going to get this through power and not through virtue. We're going to get this through technology, objective knowledge and technology to achieve ends and and, and not through love. And we got to stop. Mm-hmm. We got to stop. Yeah, I think I think kind of the difficulty, too, is that it is true that wisdom is attained through virtue and through growth and holiness which means that there has to be a certain point where you enter in blind yeah because we are vicious um so you yeah i mean i mean this is certainly my experience like i i'm doing the things because the people i admire tell me to do the things but it's not like i can really see or fully understand or have some explanations but it doesn't make sense really until i come out the other side um and i think that's kind of um like a progressive relationship with Christianity. It's not like, oh, go become a Christian for 50 years and you'll like pop out the other side, this guru who understands everything. Yeah. Like I think what God does to us is like present um, like truth and like calls us on by what we see, witness in other people. And then you start to have an experience of that that confirms the wisdom and confirms the witness of what you're seeing and then you take the next step totally. and then there's another invitation so yeah. it kind of functions more like that certainly in my own experience and i think 
and really the experience of the the saints too. Like you, the the witnesses of the church really are Im- important. Um, and when you take a step further to see, like, is it true that what they're saying is true? Um, yeah, that's just that's how you progress. I think. Yeah, and I think that's been confirmed. I don't know how you feel in in my life. There's a real confirmation in that in that there is real results in the contemplation of gender. Like it's not just this like, oh, as I think about it more and more, it grows more and more mysterious. So I can say less and less about it. So let's just shut up and live relational lives where we don't talk about it because we just know it profoundly. That's that's a way of <laughs> making mystery just into the lack of knowledge, which it's not. Mm-hmm. Rather, as you realize gender as a symbol of the church, primarily in the woman and a symbol of the God, father in the man and you receive this it begins to confirm and answer mysteries that aren't answerable by the dominant narratives um, that surround you so it's like um, the male nipple is is one that i think but also like <laughs> <laughs> like the externality of man and the internality of woman in the body um, takes on a meaning based not on like physical necessities but on fundamentally symbolic a symbolic reality. And so what you find is, oh, the questions I had um, are illuminated and answered more thoroughly and more fully in the light of the contemplation of the mystery that's being revealed. And that this is a sort of back and forth dynamic between faith and reason. It's like in faith, I contemplate the mystery and ask to receive from the other. Mm-hmm. And then this confirms what in reason I suspect and I know in, in our investigations. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, which is simply to say like, I don't, I don't want people to, yeah, I just don't want people to listen to this and make the kind of trad mistake of equating mystery with a lack of knowledge. Like, right. I think real results are possible here. I think we can say things. And indeed, I think that the tradition of communio theology in the 20th century really attained genuine results in their willingness to contemplate the mystery of gender and to not just try to, figure out what metaphysical category belongs to. They really, you know, whether it's Bouye's Woman in the Church or Balthazar or de Lubac's The Eternal Feminine or um, John Paul II, you know, they are, we know more than we did. Right, yeah. We really do. Like mm-hmm. there's more available. Uh, it works in some way. I'm not saying it's true because it works. I'm just saying it's true and it works. <laughs> right, right, right. So anyways, all of which is to say <laughs> like um, we are, when we call people, as we are, are going to throughout to relationship and to love as the privileged source of knowing um, gender, uh, we do expect results, not just, you know, aimless meandering about in mysterious worlds. Right. So, okay. Right. That's enough. Now, this is a great place to stop, don't you think? Or is there anything else you want to say? Uh, do we want to talk about what we're going to talk yeah, about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You always got to tell them what you're going to tell them. So our well, goal in this maybe, season. Oh, go ahead. Is that what you're going to tell me to say? Uh, Well, uh, yeah. Yep. <laughs> uh, Convincing. <laughs> uh, well, I guess um, what's going to happen in this season from my perspective is asking the question of, Okay, so we live in a, a point in time where to you, like your average reasonable person walking around, when presented with the idea of transgenderism, this is something that seems reasonable, decent, and normal to a lot of normal people. Mm-hmm. And I think the right has a tendency to just 
kind of call the other side crazy, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of normal people walking around. This idea is presented to them and it seems like the decent right thing to do. And it's really interesting that if you do like try to go to, um, I don't know, like, I mean, you see people do it in countries in Africa, like, hey, here's this idea of transgenderism and it just doesn't land. So um, asking the question, like, why, why does it land here? Why yeah. does it make sense here? Yeah, why yeah. does this appear as normal and reasonable to your normal and reasonable person because i don't think that there's a bunch of crazy people walking around i just don't think that's the case yeah no it's definitely convenient for the war to characterize it that way because if the other person is insane then they can only be restrained and fought um and can't be reasoned with or converted and i think that especially satisfies dialogue and clicks because if well it's just more fun right we can be honest about that it's more fun mm-hmm. to fight than it is to to reason um and that seems to be the general trajectory so we will guarantee not to get that many clicks on this season because we really do want to take um, transgenderism seriously and also to take it as a multivalent phenomenon i mean this is something that's frustrated me that mm-hmm. there seems to be an effort to simply say some one thing is the cause of being able to, with a, a body that is male, according to our best lights, say, I am a female. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, no, I mean, it, it, there are a lot of causes. Mm-hmm. Um, there, are a lot of, yeah. there are a lot of things that need to be put in place in order for it to appear reasonable. And so we're not Well, we have to live a, in, a, in, a, in a world in which it appears reasonable. Yeah. And that world includes like uh like our actual like economic structures yeah it concerns like the the general philosophy that we have about life and that we have already conceived about men and women Mm -hmm. um it has to do with uh our tendency to focus on technology and science as the solutions Mm -hmm. um and so the way that i'm conceiving of this in my mind is that there's just a lot of layers that are in place and that when we see through all of those layers or through all those lenses um then transgenderism appears as a normal and decent reasonable thing to do yeah um and it's it's helpful to kind of look at like start pulling apart some of those layers like what's going on in our culture what are the things that we're just swimming in that we've um, kind of taken as normal for ourselves and perhaps even normal for just the human experience when really it's just our modern experience. Yeah. Um, and I think that's going to help us like understand um, kind of where people are coming from, but then also understand ourselves and why yeah. our own solutions are falling short. And the ways that we're complicit in building right. up the total world in which transgenderism makes sense. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe this is just the typical Catholic way of pursuing any issue, which is to become guilty about our involvement <laughs> in it. Um, but I, I am guilty. Like, I am guilty in certain um, habits and tendencies and sins and vices uh, of perpetuating the kind of world in which the peace and power of gender is muted for the sake of a homogenous beige existence so like um this is in some ways confessional this is in some ways like an examination of our modern conscience which catholics are in no way uh exempt from just by virtue of being catholic in fact it's precisely as modernity being converted that they are catholic 
they right. are brought into the conversion of modernity. So I think awesome. it's a, it's an understanding of our present moment, but also an investigation into the understanding of ourselves. Like it's, I think yeah. um, kind of from the Catholic perspective, it can be easy to just look at uh, like the state of the church and be really upset um, and look at the, the state of modernity and be really upset and not really notice that like I, I, I am Catholic as a modern like yeah. I can't be something other than my generation and I might not subscribe to everything that my generation is proposing, mm-hmm. but there's certain ways that my thinking and my imagination has been limited just because I assume that these are the limits that have been given to me. Totally. Um, I mean, definitely being at new polity um, or, or even just like uh, studying the classics um, like years ago in college opened my eyes to how much I had been living in a lot of assumptions about my reality. Like, I think there's a general expectation that my experience is simply the human experience, and that's not true. Um, So I think it'll be enlightening in a lot of those different ways. Yeah, and I think if, if we're willing to do it, if we're willing to critique ourselves, um, then it'll bear much fruit. Because, you know, that's the only way fruit gets born. It's by right. some dying to self. So I We guess are going to talk about, yep. in no particular order, well, this one is the next one, so we should tell you this, because we're yeah. going to link below a PDF that you can go ahead and look at if you want to read along with us, but we're going to talk about capitalism um, and the way in which the economic structures of um, modernity, especially in our country, because it's what we know, um, make transgenderism plausible. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, certainly change the way that we see men and women yeah. just because the way that we do things changes the way that we understand things. And we're, we're going to focus on work. I'm worried in some ways because we've already recorded the episode that we don't <laughs> talk enough about work itself. We just start with certain presumptions. So maybe it's a good time to say in this, in this upcoming episode, um, we will be discussing work as the as a fundamental way that the human person images himself in the cosmos. Like it is the way that we put ourselves into the world for mm-hmm. contemplation to know ourselves is through labor. This is just teaching from Pope John Paul II. And and it just seems right, to be clear. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not a papal positivist. <laughs> the Pope is right. Um, but the this has profound implications for gender because it means that what men and women do with the world, the way we transform and add value to the given creation, the way that we construct the world into a temple fitting God's praise is also always a construction of little mirrors as it were of our gender. Like, so it's not irrelevant to maleness um, to have men move from fields to factories, nor is it irrelevant to maleness and femaleness to move from factories to outsourcing factories to working in front of computers, nor is it irrelevant to work for money as opposed to to work for payment in kind for the fruits of the land. Um, These things matter because labor matters as the way that we see ourselves in the world and the way we objectify in some way um, the human subject for for the sake of contemplating him or her. Mm. Um, Fair? Yep. So we're going to read... Sylvia Federici's uh, Italian Marxist feminist crit- 
well, it's, it's, it's a history, a very critical history of the transition from feudalism to mercantilism into early capitalism with an emphasis on what happens to women therein. Mm-hmm. She is very concerned about witches. I don't think that's what's don't so exciting. We talk a lot about witches. That's no. true. If yeah. you want us to talk about witches, just email us at <laughs> Mark or Maria at Newpolity. No, sorry, Mark at Newpolity.com or Maria at Newpolity.com. Mm-hmm. I will say I'm unwilling to debate a witch. Just, <laughs> just okay. putting that out there. Uh, <laughs> all right, fine. I'll debate a witch. Very good. I can do it. This might bring some holy water. Loss of the Virgin. Oh, uh, were you pointing at It's me? not a great time to point at someone. <laughs> Never point at someone and say loss of the Virgin. <laughs> we might actually have to cut that. <laughs> that might be too much. <laughs> Would you like to discuss the next episode we'll be doing? <laughs> I'm sorry. You're going to die. <laughs> uh, um, it's, it, uh, we're discussing um, the symbol of the virgin uh, and how that just, just kind of disappears from society. I mean, obviously yeah. we have the word and like everyone knows what that means, um, but what that meant in medieval society and what that means today is very different. I think when we talk about virginity, it's like, oh, it's just because you haven't had sex yet. Yeah. And that's just what it means. But it is really clear that uh, in medieval society, like virginity was a whole lifestyle. There mm-hmm. was a certain wholeness and integrity. And there was whole institutions set up for virgin women and virgin men. Um, and how does that change your imagination of what it means to be a man and woman? Because if you, yeah, if there's a, a woman out there who's completing what it means to be a woman and she's not having children, how does that change what you totally. think of yourself as a mother? Totally. I think that totally suffices. Yep. We're going to talk about the medicalization of sex. We were both um, profoundly um, disturbed. disturbed by <laughs> a, a Supreme Court justice who was being questioned, uh, you know, by someone who was trying to, you know, do the culture war thing and, and asking her, what is a woman? And she answered the question, what is a woman? By saying, I don't know, I'm not a biologist. Um, and she was drawing on a long history we have of medicalizing sex. So we're going to be looking at Foucault, who talks about this phenomenon. We're going to be discussing some of the more horrible ways in which we have arrived at a world in which a gynecologist is presumed to know more about women than a husband and why that stinks. Yep. Fair. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also I think this explains it as a source of transgenderism. Um, I mean, it, it helps to understand what it really means to lose love as the privileged place of knowledge and to, um, mm-hmm. yeah. Beige world is what I have next. Beige We're going to talk world. about, there's a, I think a common conservative argument or at least reaction that the kids are just doing this because they're bored. And we actually think, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Absolutely right. There's a quote that I love that the whole world tastes like rice crackers. Mm. I think that's true. Yep. Uh, Now, is it sufficient? No, because why the world is like that is relevant. Mm -hmm. And why gender is the chosen way of bringing color into the world. I mean, it's very appropriate that it all happens under a rainbow flag. Um, Why gender is the privileged place of of bringing life back in some way to what's considered a, a cold dead place mm-hmm. itself needs to be answered like it's not sufficient to say they're bored because yeah. you know you could also be bored and just like throw molotov cocktails off your roof no right. one's doing that um maybe they are but you know 
I don't know. No one posts about it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not happening. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we really want to talk about that, take that seriously, like to affirm that intuition, but then also try to dive as deeply as possible with it. Um, and we want to talk about life issues. One of the questions we always get, or one of the kind of narratives that we always get is, isn't this a sort of um, slippery slope? We're just at a certain stage. Like we allowed abortion, we allowed divorce, we allowed contraception before mm-hmm. those things. And we uh, eventually arrive at this point where gender is just sort of almost seen as like, an, even though it surprised everyone in some way, it's almost seen as like the necessary next step to a lot of previous um, within within the Catholic world, just a lot of previous sin. Like it isn't just the new sin. Mm-hmm. And um, again, there's something to that, but what we'd like to do is show the way that sins lead to other sins and not just presume that it's a slippery slope. Because it's not really a slippery slope. It's like there's a reason you move from one thing to the other. Mm-hmm. And so tracing that out seems like it would help people see why a particular lens is put over our eyes by simply the fact that we kill children as a normal part of our culture. Like that is a lens. Right. The things that we do just changes the way that we see the world and what we think are normal possibilities. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 we can really reasonably speak of that. We don't have to simply say, um, you know, the truth, sin begets sin. We can also, I think, say how. So we talk about that. And then you told me to write down hero narrative. Can you? Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, um, part another layer is like, well, like why, like, why are we leaning into this so much? And it's because um, at least like the, the transgender narrative is also taking the narrative of like the story that the United States is telling about right. ourselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We are the heroes fighting against the tyrant. Um, and so even though like technically like queer theory, constructional, constructionalism and um, postmodernism uh, is very uh, skeptical of meta narratives, part of what's actually drawing people is the meta narrative. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think it would be quite as strong if there wasn't a story yeah, and a absolutely. role to play. And you see the, the conservative right playing into the same kind of meta narrative. Yeah, it's just a fascinating gap that we discussed in the first season of gender between the academics uh, on the queer theory side of things who are denying any any narrative um, and really any real character position to what they're what they're doing. And then on the ground with high schoolers, the absolute 100% narrative focused right right I am the hero of a plot. Mm-hmm. And I'm on the good guys team. Like mm-hmm. that is the you can you cannot imagine a, a greater dichotomy than than those, right? Than those two. And I think as really it is implicit in in all the academic posturing, uh, it's there, and it's definitely what's motivating to to write books, for instance, because mm-hmm. you don't write books unless you're mad or saint. Yeah. So I I think it'll be helpful to kind of look at all of those things as like layers of the world of modernity that we're living in now and was i mean not that these are the only factors no, 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 not an exhaustive list just what what came to our minds as definitely um definitely having a lot of significance and why we're doing the thing that we're doing at this moment and then why why we're responding in the way that we are and i think also uh it'll be lightning to just understanding 
how we think of ourselves in general because yeah. it's not as if any of us are immune totally. to all these layers. I mean, we we're we're just creatures, and so like we do run up against uh, limitations, and like our structures really do. Um, uh, yeah, they they play a force in the way that we imagine ourselves and our possibilities. Yeah, Maria, always a pleasure. Glad to have you here. Glad Thanks. to hopefully actually do all the episodes that we promised i think yeah, we can do it i think i think so times are busy but we'll make it happen so listen uh if you want to jump on board with us we really appreciate you making it this far and we are very excited to have you on board for our second season we will be releasing all of these uh, episodes as premiered episodes and either maria or myself or both are going to try to be online when they do premiere so try to catch those because if you have any questions that come up immediately um, we'd love to try and answer them and, and in that way kind of uh, fill the inevitable gaps that we're going to leave in many of these conversations. Uh, and I think the way that technique work is it, it leaves the live chat there so you could actually see that yeah, whenever you I watch the so. video. And hopefully that'll work. So hopefully it'll give it a kind of gloss to the text as it were live. That That's, sounds so much more sophisticated. Yeah, it is. It's not very sophisticated. Uh, <laughs> so and we'll we also like be... to give a gloss on this YouTube video. <laughs> We'll also be leaving uh, a lot of links, both to the texts that we're going to be reading in the upcoming episode. So like in this one, we'll have Silvia Federici's text, but we'll continue to do that. So look for those links. And then besides that, we're also going to be adding just um, additional helpful material. So we're not going to talk about everything that's gone into it, but we're going to try to cite a bunch of sources so that if you want to dive deeper, you can. This is going to include essays that we're working on. So there's a lot of times in podcasting most of the time in podcasting, I leave just with the horrible <laughs> feeling that I spent the whole time babbling and, and sort of giving a half-baked version of something that I should really have just sat down and written with clear reasoning and elegant style. Um, <laughs> so to help myself in that regard, <laughs> to feel better about myself, I am uh, <laughs> going to be writing those things as well and um, hopefully attaching them in a timely manner to those videos. So all of which is to say it's, um, I hope, going to be a good period of growth for you to go through this with us and we know it's going to be a good period of growth for us to have you with us um, so we want to thank you for opening your minds and opening your hearts um, to the mystery of man and woman in this way and if you disagree or you think we're off base we really do want to hear from you um, so you can email us mark at newpolity.com maria at newpolity.com and if, if you'd rather it not just be like a public comment but um, I, at least, am also interested in uh, any debate. So if there's a particular thing that, you know, you don't just want to say we're wrong about privately, but you want the world to know that we're wrong about, um, <laughs> and you're not crazy in any way, that's a... Then come on. Come on over to Steubenville. We'll have you, at the, uh, we'll have you in the uh, studio here, and we can discuss it. Sounds great. Sound great? Yep. Wonderful. Thank you all so much. May God bless you. And may you be fruitful in your contemplation of the mystery. Bye. <laughs>